Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. So in some ways, one of the chief principles of meditation practice in any tradition is balance. And that is often the balance between, on the one side, getting a little calmer and relaxing, de-stressing, and on the other side, getting some energy and interest and connection to our experience. So that's the interplay we always work with. And it said some of that balance is reflected right away in our posture. You want to see if you can have some energy in your body, but not like so much energy. You're really stiff and uptight. Also, just to be relaxed and at ease, but not like so at ease. Welcome, come in. Not so at ease that you're like way slumped over. So see if you can find a place that feels balanced for you in your body, and you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most comfortable. If you like, you can start just by listening to sound, whether it's the sound of my voice or other sounds. It's a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing our experience to come and go. It's like the sounds just wash through you. And you can bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can make the shift from the more conceptual level, like go fingers, to the world of direct sensation. Picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't need to name these things, but feel them. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, just the normal, natural breath, wherever it's most distinct for you. Maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. You can find that place, bring your attention there and just rest. Let's see if you can feel just one breath. If you find your mind slipping off, you get lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep, don't worry about it. We say the most important moment of all is the next moment after you've been gone, after you've been distracted, because that's the moment of recovery. Where we practice letting go gently of whatever's taken us away and simply coming back, no blame, No judgment can rest your attention back on the feeling of the breath.
So thank you. Maybe we'll get a chance to do a little bit more of that. So I, I was really um, uh, interested in hearing from you just for a few moments if there's anything you would like to say about your relationship to technology. Then I'll confess myself. Oh, you probably noticed. <laughs> Does anybody feel you're on your device a lot? A lot, a lot? Too much? What were you going to say? I was going to say I had an extremely resentful relationship with my mom. Angry, resentful. Um, I even go as far as to say hate sometimes. Um, your phone? My, my phone, my computer, the Okay. So the comment was that um, the time she used to spend perhaps delightedly reading novels or other leisure activities is now all taken up by getting back to people. So whether it's the phone or, or a computer, whatever the, the means, she finds that she's filled with resentment, maybe lending itself to actual hatred. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. So the comment was about um, only getting a smartphone a year ago. It's like, whoa. I'm so interested in you. She had a semi-smartphone before then. I don't even know what that is, but that's like a Blackberry. That's good. Um, but now she's finding it somewhat addictive and that she's having to like school herself like no you don't really have to find out what's on facebook right now um and that's one reason she came tonight was was because of that topic yeah so i feel like there are times that i can discipline myself enough to put it away like right now and then i go crazy when, <laughs> when he I has his out I'm next to her <laughs> Those of you who can't see. So I've worked really hard to be here, and I'm like, this is the time, and I'm going to cut myself off, and it's like, oh, hey, Jerry, who's he finding? <laughs> so it's like, and but this happens at home when we're watching a movie, and my husband will still have his phone, or um, I could be, you know, at a movie theater, and people are on their phones. It's like, it's not enough that I put mine away. It's still... Like the screen is just everywhere. Did you hear that? He still has it out too. It's like, <laughs> oh, he's recording. Yeah. Should I be repeating these? Are you okay? Anybody not hearing? Okay, let me know if you can't hear, okay? You can hear? Okay, so her comment was that um, 
now that she uh, goes on something like Facebook quite a lot, she has um, insight into some friends' political beliefs, which she had not heard of before. Just they they were interacting differently. Now she's decided she doesn't like some of them anymore. Oh, no, I still like like them. them. (laughs) Didn't you say that you don't like them anymore? But you change your mind. <laughs> yeah, there's, so, there's so much more to yeah. being able to see online. Right, right. Right. And so now that, I mean, because we are so divided anyway, and uh, there is so much more, well said, there's so much more to human beings than what we display on the page, you know, or on the screen, that uh, we're more categorizing people, you know, based on that. Okay. Yes. Okay, so right. another another person with the word hate. Uh, so she said that she hates two things. Uh, one is uh, being addicted to the sound. I don't know how many of you were original AOL users. That sound. Oh, it was so exciting. You've got mail. Like, I don't know. It was like the weirdest sound. You know, like, but that you know, being addicted to like the pings and the notifications and the and not always being able to turn that off. And then feeling the need, like, say on Facebook, if you're going to post something, to craft the perfect statement and, and you know, the time that that takes and, and so on. Yes? I guess there, for me, there are two separate things. One is um, the work encroachment that this all creates, and that seems to me to be quite disruptive. Mm-hmm. And then there's the facebook kind of stuff, which it strikes me as our choice. Yeah. To be on Facebook or not be on Facebook, to look at Twitter or not look at Twitter, and I see the flip side of that—that that, you know, I can use my phone and listen to your guided meditations at night. Or if I didn't have the technology, I wouldn't be able to do that. So I kind of feel like to some of it's in our control, and we have to take control of that. And some of it is this encroachment that is kind of that is it's massive. Yeah. Okay. So the the comment was about. Uh, first, the work encroachment from all this technology, which we have to somehow deal with. And then there's all those elements that are more in our control, like how often should I go on Facebook or do I need to check Twitter again? And then, of course, uh, a mention of kind of the wonder of technology, which I find awesome, where, you know, we can listen to so many things that I mean, I, I will just say, you know, and we're going to go on in a second, because um, I, I think I got the themes. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I went to India in 1970 to learn how to meditate. And so that was before there were no cell phones, there were no computers. There were very few books in English. Um, if Each one of us had a notebook that we kept always. So if you heard about a passage in a book that was very inspiring, you copied it down. And if a teacher said something or you had a kind of understanding or an opening, you wrote it down. So it was like this very personal journal that was so, so precious and, and so important. And and to see... Um, how much more is available for people? Because not everyone's going to go to India. Not everyone's going to uh, do that trek or whatever. Uh, I mean, I think it's just amazing what, what's what been given to us in that way. So, do you want to start? Sure, sure, sure. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, I, in studying Buddhism specifically, because we're calling this Buddha with a smartphone, awakened being with a smartphone. 
I've always been fascinated by the combination of the ancientness of Buddhism mixed with its modernity, um, the sort of statements it makes about um, universal human experiences. There's one point actually in, in one of the ancient texts where the Buddha says, what I've taught about dissatisfaction or confusion or suffering would be true in any universe. That's sort of an amazing claim. Like, you know, like anywhere, any planet that Star Trek went to and beyond, <laughs> these ideas of a sentient being experiencing their own mind, experiencing their own life, and either uh, from a state of confusion or a state of wisdom would apply. So there's something very universal to being a being being described. And at the same time, I'm always fascinated by how, uh, to, I'm, I'm going to try to say this in a respectful way, how narrowly contextual the ancient Buddhist teachings are. So the example that comes to mind that we're talking about tonight uh, with our technology and our most sort of at-hand version of that technology being the smartphone um, it would fall in the category for a lay practitioner, um, for somebody who's not going to go forth um, from society, um, which good luck going forth from society these days. That's a whole other issue. But it would fall into the category of this set of precepts uh, for a person to work with to sort of, you could say, to harmonize the mind uh, in every aspect of their life. And it would probably fall into the category, interestingly enough, of intoxicants. I'm pretty convinced that if the, if the historical Buddha taught in 2016, he would not talk about alcohol, although that is a major, major intoxicant that a lot of people suffer from. I'm pretty convinced that he would talk about our technology first. And to, to universalize that, I think, in, in, in terms of the way my tradition might look at it, not with an attitude of thou shalt not, but the precepts are really meant to be more of a uh, system of contemplations, a sort of pay attention to this in your daily life. And the, with this fifth precept on intoxicants, I think one way of saying it in, in modern language it, or in universal language is, be curious about how you escape. Be curious about how you escape. Be interested in, as my teacher, um, Sakyang Mipam Ramche, uh, says, be interested in how you always want there to be another now. And I think for, for me... If you, I mean, there's still way more bars in this city than um, there are yoga centers or meditation centers or community centers. So that's still a, a thing for sure. And for some of us, it's, it's a thing we really have to practice with as a precept. Um, but if you walk down the street at a time when everybody's sober from the alcohol or drugs, you will still see... Sometimes, I don't know if anybody's ever been on Broadway at noon, and 75% of people, literally, on a street of 300 people, 75% of people. So it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. Sharon and I and others like to have conversations with looking at another framing of meditation and mindfulness and the Buddhist teachings, which is, a whole there's a whole nother sort of field of thought which is like what is the human nervous system prepared to do and it's pretty clearly not prepared to live in a world of smartphones <laughs> it's really our nervous systems are designed more for a world of uh natural threats tribal realities saber-toothed tigers that kind those kinds of things right um, and so it's interesting to give to a person who's looking for saber-toothed tigers uh, a device on which you can make connections with about 4,000 
non-saber-toothed tigers on a given day, but that your nervous system will misinterpret as being saber-toothed tigers. Sort of weird to put, as, as the ancient teaching said, in, in the hands of the untrained mind, this, it's almost like putting a nuclear communications device, you know, in the hands of a, of a toddler, you know. It's sort, of, it's sort of interesting how powerful these, uh, these machines are. Um, my tradition, uh, to flip that, uh, and I think every Buddhist tradition has this view, but in my tradition, which is a, a tantric or derivative of Tibetan Buddhism called the Shambhala tradition, there's a real emphasis on wisdom and empowerment. Right? So uh, a lot of times to flip this conversation, rather than looking at the smartphone or the technology as an intoxicant, um, we could flip the conversation. And I don't know if people have seen, um, you know, classic depictions in Tibetan or Himalayan art. Um, Sharon was just teaching at the Rubin Museum. But oftentimes the awakened beings, the bodhisattvas, the great masters of awakening, will be holding weapons, which seems really weird for a system of nonviolence and ahimsa and compassion that you see a bodhisattva holding a sword. Um, especially with what's going on with weapons these days in our country. But a weapon in the hands of a master, the notion, can actually become a force for good. Right? It can become a way to actually slice through confusion. So this is the other way of looking at the smartphone is now imagine a bodhisattva is able to connect not just compassionately with one other being at a time, but with 4,000 other beings at a time. It's like a multiplier effect for the awakened state of mind. So this is a really interesting question. Like which, which of these worlds do we live in? <laughs> Do we live in the world where everybody's addicted? We're still really caught up in the need for immediate dopamine responses. Candy Crush, like Facebook and Candy Crush, not that much difference. <laughs> Donald Trump, Kim Kardashian, not that much difference. Facebook, Candy Crush, not that much difference. It's a... That's one side of the world we live in. The other side of the world, we, of this sort of modern world that we live in, is a time of great empowerment. The idea that you could actually, it's, it's, the, it's the same um, kind of thing that makes us so distracted um, that allowed the other side of this is that I had my 20-year high school reunion two weeks before uh, getting married, and we could form a Facebook group and everybody could post just a ridiculous number of pictures and well wishes to each other and just like amplify the love that everybody felt for each other, even in 20 years of absence. Right. So that's a great weapon of compassion. The key element for which of these worlds we live in, I mean, I, you, you may know the word I'm going to say. It's the, it's the big fat. Uh, there's two words, probably, but the big one is the M word, mindfulness. I, I feel like the world we're starting to inhabit, it's, it's to not have some way of working with own, one's own mind with 7 billion people and technology and global warming and the ways messages can spread. It's not having a mindfulness practice feels more and more, and I don't mean Buddhist meditation. I mean a way of working with one's own mind in whatever way that is for us feels more and more like just kind of disrespectful. It's like you're not, it's like not covering your mouth on the subway when you sneeze. If you're going to have a device, if we're going to have a device and we're going to connect with people, we need to know how to use those devices. Right. And um, it does feel like the, sometimes I feel like, t to bring it back to myself, when I 
post something online, for example, and maybe my humor was not that clear or my intention was not that clear or I was reactive, I feel like, oh, I just polluted a public space. Except it was a public space inhabited by like thousands of people. So it feels more and more important to live in a uh, technologically amplified world to have a way to work with one's mind. And then it does with an intention towards compassion. I think technology for me becomes uh, a bodhisattva's weapon. Right? It becomes a way to say, well, what, what's the point of posting this comment? Wouldn't that be great if that was before you commented on someone else's post on Facebook? Awakened Mark Zuckerberg appeared and said, what is, your, what is your intention with this post? What would you like to see happen out of this post? And then you could say, well, here my intention is to benefit beings, and here's how I thought that might happen. And then it would say, okay, post accepted. <laughs> so we have to kind of create these controls for our own usage of technology, mindfulness and intention. And the interesting thing I think of of all of our technological devices is this: it's still at that point where the, the settings have these controls. If the Bodhisattva wanted to come out and use the iPhone 6, you could go into the settings and shift things around so that it doesn't give you all the notifications or so that there's certain timings that you're allowed to use the apps, right? The interesting thing is that none of these are ever the default settings that the apps come with. So we have to really um, uh, work with it this way. So I just want to invite us to a little experiment, if you don't mind. If you have a device with you, can you just take it out? Oh, thank goodness. Mine's on airplane mode. (laughs) Just take it out. Mine's, Mine's on airplane mode. It's telling me right now it wants to not be on airplane mode. It's saying turn off airplane mode or use Wi-Fi to access data. Can I turn it on? (laughs) And there's no option to say I don't want to do that, which is interesting. It just says okay or settings. But just look at your device. (coughs) And for a moment, just think about the ways that you actually use this device as an intoxicant. Be curious about the apps or the ways or the times of day or the uncomfortable situations where this device is just like a double shot of whiskey. Shot of dopamine. What's that? Good. (laughs) Anybody got a cord? (laughs) So just for a moment... Connect with the fact that probably for each of us, this device somewhat functions as intoxicant, as escape, as a way to disconnect from our present moment. Okay, now switch that. Think about this device as a bodhisattva's weapon, as a, as a sort of wisdom, sort of compassion, a way to connect a way to benefit the world you live in. Is there any way you can think of that you use this device, like the example I gave of my high school class reconnecting or a blog you've written that was very dear to your heart that illuminated your own insights or somebody you connect with when you're having a hard time via text message? Just How is this device for you a tool of compassion? Okay, we can put it away. <laughs> what? Which one of those did you connect to more? I'm just wondering. The first or the second? The drug, the toxin. Yeah. Anybody have the other experience? Maybe we could just have a little discussion of that, this way of looking at it. as the, this in the, in the tantric tradition, this sort of notion that 
objects, that emotions, that experiences kind of turn on a dime between a wisdom or skillful manifestation and a confused or destructive manifestation is called co-emergence. Wisdom and neurosis co-arising. And it's really how the mind holds the experience which determines which of those wins, you could say. That reminds me just one of, one of my favorite uh, novels of the last five years. It's a satirical dystopian novel by an author named Gary Steingart. And it takes place in New York probably about 10 years in the future. And if two people actually talk to each other, it's the, the protagonist says, I can't believe he verbaled me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ethan and I have this uh, ritual whenever we're having dinner together. Uh, we each pull out our phones and we tweet out, you know, having dinner with at Ethan Nickturn, having dinner uh, with at Sharon Salzberg. We were in this restaurant once and there was a woman there who knew Ethan and she came over to us and she said, are you going to talk to each other ever? Or are you just going to be on your phones all night? Yeah. We said, no, no, we just do this in the beginning. Right. I have another story of us eating, which is an <laughs> even funnier story, if you don't mind me telling it, about the positive power of technology, which we were at, out at dinner and the waitress knew Sharon, as as a ridiculous number of people I find know and love Sharon. <laughs> it's really wonderful. And I don't think... Uh, uh, she was very, very loving of Sharon, and she was telling her. I, I don't think English was. She spoke perfect English, but English wasn't her first language. So sometimes there's slight turns of phrases that are a little bit different. And so she was talking about using Sharon's audio meditations to help her before bed each night. And then she goes, Sharon, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how many people go to bed with you each night? <laughs> <laughs> and Ethan promptly put that on Twitter. Yes. I just <laughs> he didn't to miss share. a beat. You know, I was like, "Wow, thanks." <laughs> uh, so that that seems to be the positive power of technology. You wanted to say something? Yeah? Well, I love technology, <laughs> but now I'm, I'm just thinking about you know what are the signals we miss within our own bodies, within our own psyches, where it's. Uh, either too much or it's the wrong kind or um i mean there there are several oddities you know to the whole thing like uh what does it mean to have a curated life if you're putting your life on display um i was teaching a class uh, in new york once and a friend of mine who's a professor somewhere said that he thought uh, most of his students at the college were using something like Facebook or, or basically social media just as a way to incite envy because people were not posting photos of their mediocre meal or or whatever. And I said, you know, I think that's probably an age thing because most of my people are, like, posting about their shoulder surgery or something, you know. It's like a different thing. Um, like, like a photo of? <laughs> no, not a photo, but uh, just the anesthesia was so much longer than it was expected to be, you know. Like, you know, uh, it's a different age. <laughs> um, you know, but what does it mean when you feel you have to present your life for public consumption? That's an interesting question. Um uh, there's this woman, Linda Stone, who coined this phrase that I often use, talking about our time. Uh, the phrase is continuous partial attention. And we're just like paying continuous partial attention. So we feel uncentered. We feel unfulfilled, actually. And she lays a lot of that at fear of missing out. Like you are on Twitter and you think, what about Facebook? You know, or maybe I should, you know... Uh, you know, there's so many ways in which I think we need to, you know, speaking of mindfulness, I mean, there's a very distinct feeling that we can discover in our bodies, in our mood, in our in our psyche, that is the sign, you know, that we're disconnected, ultimately. And that, which is ironic, right? Uh, since they're all supposed to be mediums of connection. And that we're... Um, uh, doing something that we actually will feel the consequences of in some way. 
But, you know, the positive side, I think, is vast. It was interesting when I, I did your exercise, too. And uh, most of what I saw as benefits, I was really deeply celebrating for others. Mm. You know, I mean, obviously, it benefits me as well. And and there's a way in which, you know, I went to India when I was 18 years old. I went to India before I'd ever been to California. And from that time on, I have felt like there's there's really no psychological distance between me and India. I feel really deeply connected there. And I could, I feel like maybe I'm wrong now, but it seems to me I could get on an airplane and land there. And it would be, oh, right, here I am. And and I think about a world in which maybe we don't have to have psychological distance from anyone because we can recognize ourselves and others because mm. that's the level in which we have the opportunity to relate, you know, not just uh, the more superficial level. And then I think about, you know, there was a time and the Garrison Institute actually has a program now uh bringing the tools of yoga and meditation to international humanitarian aid workers. Um, And there was a time when, you know, I'd be teaching in New York and someone would come up to me and they would literally be shaking. And they would say, I just came back from Congo and I'm going back. And I have no spiritual support at all. You know, I need my practice and I have no way of reinforcing it at all. And I would just think, you know, can you get an internet connection? And now with that program, uh, for the people who've taken that program, which is still a very small number, um, you know, the Garrison's to created an app for people like when you're, and I think there's like, isn't there a thing on the app that's like, I need help now, <laughs> you know, like, which just will remind you, take a few breaths, you know, come back to your body, remember your intention. Something like that. And uh, even on another level, I was thinking of Ethan and I are both part of a little support group for somebody who... Um, I thought that was for me. But. <laughs> no, maybe it is for you. could be for me, too. It's very little. Uh, it's, it's five people. I love talking about it. Um, a friend of ours said that if he woke up in the morning and he turned right, he was at his computer... And if he turned left, he was at his meditation cushion. So we formed a support group. And the idea is that when you've practiced during the day, uh, it might be sitting meditation, might be walking meditation, whatever form it's taken. But when you've done that dedicated period of practice, you send an email to the other four. And the subject line is always turned left. (laughs) And then if you want, you can say, you know, turn left on Amtrak. There seems to be a big Amtrak going crowd, these five people. Or, you know, turn left to the Rubin Museum or whatever. Or nothing. Because the important thing is the subject line. I just thought it was fantastic, you know, because it's like any community, it brings up everything that can come up in the human mind. And you have to have a good sense of humor about what you're thinking. So, for example, I have had a daily practice for decades now. And so I was always the first one to write for the longest time. And then I got really paranoid, like, what are they thinking about me? <laughs> They're thinking I'm showing off. I'm like this goody-goody. So then I'd wait like seven hours from the time I sat until I wrote, you know, or people get upset. I was the last one, you know, or I forgot. I really sat. I forgot. I sat all week. I forgot to write. Um, but it's just amazing, you know, that that is actually a supportive mechanism. It's a way that we go beyond, because everyone says sit with others and you'll find support. Maybe you don't have any others to sit with in your life. So how do we reach one another? I just think it's a tremendous thing. The The issue, of course, is it's both moderation and usage. Like, what are we using it for and what's coming up within us? And can we work with that? Can we deal with that in some skillful way? One thing that's coming up for me is this premise that I uh, put forth at the beginning that uh, that we could reinterpret this notion of working with intoxicants as a as a practice, as a post meditation practice, as an in everyday life mindfulness practice, as 
become curious about your escapes. And I think we're at this really beautiful moment, um, the last, uh, you know, uh, 15 years, but especially just the last two years, one year of mindfulness being everywhere, you know, and um, meditation being everywhere. But I do think there's something for me really important about the view of a Buddhist approach, which is uh, I sometimes feel like Buddhist meditation could be rebranded non-transcendental meditation (laughs) because the idea is that you actually um, have to work with things as they are. And for a human being in a human body, uh, that things as they are includes a certain amount of necessary discomfort and the idea that you're going to transcend that discomfort is uh, in some ways we would say that's actually the cause of suffering the myth of transcending discomfort not the solution to suffering and so when somebody mentioned I think over here the, the, the feeling of feeling that pull toward the device or feeling that pull towards Facebook uh, Pema Chodron, one of the uh, master teachers of my lineage, would say that that's a hook. And uh, that's an uncomfortable moment, having that pull and not doing anything about it. But it's really good to practice just feeling the pull and letting yourself be uncomfortable. It's actually in the deeper teachings on karma, that's considered a gap where it hasn't been decided yet if our habitual pattern is going to recreate itself. And it's a very pregnant, it's a discomfort pregnant with uh, opportunity, actually. It's not really a problem to be solved. And so I say this to people sometimes, you know, when I lead weekend retreats or week-long retreats, um, part of every meditation session should be uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? There's, there is a deeper piece that we're talking about, but the deeper piece that we're talking about comes from making friends with that, from accommodating that. And I think we should be slightly uncomfortable a little bit each day by separation from our devices. We should feel the pull. <laughs> It's like a very Lord of the Rings thing, right? <laughs> Feel the... Just because I have a ring of power now. Um, oh. <laughs> you you feel the pull, but you just let it be. Just let it be. Um, so I, I think if the Buddha was... Uh, uh, if Steve Jobs hired the Buddha, he would say, this thing should be on airplane mode a certain amount of the day. And just see how that feels to be unavailable, to be uncomfortable, to wonder, did somebody text me? Is everything all right? Um, it's re- this is one of the things, as a, as a Buddhist teacher, it's really hard to market making friends with discomfort. One, because you don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable. But... That is actually what we're selling as Buddhist teachers is, yeah, life is sometimes uncomfortable. That's what we're working with here. That's not what we're trying to make go away. Obviously, if you can make pain go away, you always do that. But there's no realm. It's said in ancient Buddhist teachings that there is one realm of the gods. This is what, one of the things I love about Buddhism is the god realm is actually a realm of the most, they're even more confused than humans. <laughs> Um, they've created a bubble of comfort that's about to pop. And it takes a long time for it to pop. But once it pops, it's hell because they have no ability to accommodate even minor discomforts. Whereas humans are in a much more balanced situation. It's like we're in a you win some, you lose some situation here. At least us privileged humans on the other (coughs) side. So... um, I would say if you're feeling that pull or that hook or that addiction with your smartphone, because I do work with this a little bit every day. Sometimes I fail, sometimes I succeed. Um, Work with 
the discomfort of not reacting, of space from your device, of no comment, of I didn't check, I couldn't even hear the ping. I actually decided at a certain point to, I mean, uh, to not use any of those apps to time my meditation session because it was too... Insight Timer was a and I have a meditation on Insight Timer, so this is ironic. But I don't use Insight Timer because it's too there's too much of a pull to check my work email or my personal email in the middle of my hour long practice, which I don't recommend you start with, but because um, <laughs> you will want a break to check your phone if you do an hour long practice. Um, so I hope that makes sense to like actually. Uh, our tradition is one where discomfort's part of it, and actually discomfort is way more productive in practice than we think it is, and mm-hmm. that could apply to our smartphone as well. And I don't mean self-torture when I say discomfort. I don't mean giving yourself a hard time or being mean to yourself. I just mean that pull of discomfort in the body. I want to click something right now, and you just don't. And you set up your life so that you can't click sometimes i think that's fabulous you know because it's it's both like you you can see all these things as adventures they're like these experiments that we can make which we're never really taught of those kinds of things as adventures you know we think of adventure as very very externalized usually going to a foreign land or whatever but to have that kind of inner adventure and especially to be able to tolerate and not endure, you know, but like actually take an interest in that discomfort. It's fascinating. Like how much loneliness is in there, how much mm. other feeling. And mm. if you can hang in there with it, then so many layers will reveal themselves. And, you know, maybe the answer is something other than what appears on the surface. And I don't know. Uh, I keep having to, I keep thinking and then forgetting to check this with a neuroscientist, but um, I read somewhere once that the dopamine rush of wanting something, that kind of yearning, lasts about eight minutes on average. So the recommendation was like if you were shopping on a catalog, wait nine minutes before you actually bought the thing. So I don't know if that's literally true or not. There is some estimation, I'm sure. Of some time frame, because that's the thing about the discomfort. It's not going to be there forever, you know, and it is interesting to uh, hang in there with it and and take a look at it Mm -hmm. and then knowing that it will pass and then you can decide Mm -hmm. what you're going to do. Because I don't think anyone is saying like never, (laughs) you know, pick it up or or post or anything like that. But it's so interesting to see what motivates us and what compels us and why we do these things and how we feel. And, you know, are we disappointed because nothing's changed, but we only checked a second and a half ago, you know, like, (laughs) got to give it a little time. Uh, It's quite interesting. Ethan's uh, center, the Interdependence Project, um, once invited me to join in some experiment of like I think totally giving up your cell phone for a period of time something like that and I said do you know that old Gandhi story Uh, which they didn't and I said well you know there's this story it's a very famous story about Gandhi where a mother brought her kid, maybe like seven-year-old kid, to Gandhi and said, please tell him to stop eating sugar, stop eating sweets. And Gandhi said, come back in two weeks. So they came back in two weeks, and he said to the kid, you should stop eating sweets. So then his, the mother said, why did you want two weeks? And he said, so I could stop myself <laughs> from eating sweets. I said, I don't think so. You know, like, I don't think I'm writing that one. <laughs> you know, like, I need a little while. Uh, to make the experiment. But what a fantastic concept of our lives, you know, that we don't have to be so stuck. And these are new ways to be stuck, but it's still stuck. And and we have so much opportunity to to just keep shifting and changing and, and examining. Yeah, I mean, the comment was actually about the marshmallow test, which is a big 
tenet of emotional intelligence. Um, although I have lately, I read somewhere on Twitter, so it's only like, I know a tiny amount of things about a million things. So I read on Twitter, <laughs> which I live on, uh, something about maybe a refutation of that test, but I don't really know, you know, so, um, you know. So, sometimes the things somebody like Louis C.K. says about social media seem more... Um, just live your life. Don't tell other people about it. Just live your life, right? um, yeah, no, it's tricky. It's very, I mean, it's very co-emergent. I think that's a good, um, I, I like that framework for looking at these things because one is there's a humility to realize that we can get caught at any moment. Two, there's, there's an awareness. Uh, there's a confidence that we do have wisdom, you know, and, um, uh, I wouldn't say I'm addicted to social media. I would say it's something I, I work with, you know, um, and uh, and sometimes it feel I feel caught in it. Um, I often feel caught when there's a conversation going on that I want to be um, part of, you know, online um, about art or about movies or about uh, politics, um, and uh, it's. It's a constant practice. I mean, I think that's why I like the notion of curiosity as a word, because it allows you to come back to a state of it's always now. You can always reset and look at how am I engaging in this moment? And I really do try to pay attention to, like, am I just doing this to um, avoid, you know? So one way I notice it coming up for me is I'll often have an end of a long, when I'm in New York, an end of a long day working with students and then teaching at the Shambhala Center in Chelsea, and then I uh, walk down 6th Avenue and then get on the train to go home to Williamsburg. And it's always interesting because my escape in that time is I like to listen to music. And it's like I've been around people all day and I just want to like... And invariably when I do that and when I have the intention of escaping, I run into somebody I know. Um. And so that to me is just other people are a message as exactly as somebody was saying is like the, that connection with other people actually can bring us back to the present moment. You know, another human body in front of us, um, I think in this era is actually, uh, or, uh, or a friend is actually one of our biggest supports, you know? And so I think this, this little trick that we discovered with the turned left micro sangha, um, we've applied it in the teacher trainings we've done at the Interdependence Project, at the Shambhala, teacher trainings I do at the, in the Shambhala community, of breaking people up into quads to support each other's daily practice. Um, it's it's a constant struggle, though. It is a it is a, a constant like where am I? Where is my attention supposed to be right now? And uh, feeling sort of in control, sort of not in control. So the reason I wouldn't call it an addiction for me is just because um, sometimes I do feel in control. But it's a, it, there's, no, there's no end of the game. So, but I do like to use Twitter, and I do like to use uh, Instagram, and I do like to use Facebook. And because I'm late Generation X rather than a millennial, I have no idea how to use Snapchat. Um, and probably the early millennials are into something that the 20-somethings don't even know about, um, you know, and so, and there's like, there's a kindergarten near here where the kids are inventing an app right now. <laughs> um, so um, it's, it's a constant struggle. And I think a sense of humor about it is, that's why I like to make a lot of jokes when I'm talking about this stuff, because I think a sense of humor is really important, because uh, we're not going to get it right. And I, to be the jerk, I also think we don't want to be the jerk who's like, you know, going up and down the subway platform, be like, be present when you see people on there. Like, just. <laughs> Someone could film that on uh, Facebook Live or whatever. Yeah, I would. I, I do think it's a, the, the mindfulness movement and the what I like to call the awakest movement. I would really hope that we don't develop such a strong fundamentalist branch, although that is sort of starting to happen in certain degrees, the sort of like, you're not doing it right. You know? And you lost all your vowels. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's a struggle, but it's a, it's a struggle because you're working with something very powerful, 
and that that's and and very uh, deeply connected with what it means to be part of a relationship and a society and part of how our nervous system works on the personal level. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty. But if you reframe it, this is what the beautiful thing is if you reframe anything that's a struggle as a practice, it instantly becomes workable, which is why we use this very sometimes hallmarky language in Buddhist thought of like, view it as a practice. It's, it's not because we want to just say some, some platitude. It's because we actually want to reframe what feels obstructed as an opportunity because that's the way to actually work with it. Um, uh, in terms of apps, then... I uh, am on and also uh, really enjoy Dan Harris's app, 10% Happier, uh, which I think is a tremendous tool. Um, And I agree with you completely. You know, it's like we're not in village Asia. Like when I I tell these stories, you know, and my teacher said this and somebody always comes up to me and says, how can I find a teacher? And I don't know, you know, like. Uh, it, it's a tremendous tool, but one of the great things about Dan's app is that there are lots of opportunities to ask questions. You get a coach, and there's, you know, and if they don't have the expertise um, to match your level of experience, then there are other people they can ask, or I get questions from them. You know, or Joseph Goldstein, who's one of the main teachers on the app, gets questions from them. So there's there's really a system of um, support that I think is is tremendous and and uh they're very creative and good. So I you know, I like that one a lot. Insight timer is great too. I just I just don't like my phone near me when I'm meditating. That's all I would, that's a a very personal choice. Yeah. <laughs> if you come on uh I co founded a retreat center in uh Barry, Massachusetts, which is still alive and flourishing. We're celebrating our fortieth anniversary this year. And uh the retreats of varying lengths is two days, three days, seven days, nine days, three months um, are usually intensive silent retreats where you speak to a teacher or, you know, other public question and answers where you have a private conversation with a teacher fairly often. And you may speak to a staff person, perhaps, but, you know, the rest is silent. You're not talking during meals or whatever. And, and, the encouragement is not to do a whole lot of reading. I mean, if you're reading like a wildly inspiring book, like Ethan's <laughs> book that you cannot put down, you can read it a little bit. But most of us have, and this probably plays into the iPhone thing too, you know, like most of us have a habit of not placing ourselves in the center of change, right? So we hold these values as abstract. Boy, it would be great to be more mindful. And look at that person's experience being more mindful. Or, you know, once I leave Brooklyn, I'll be able to be more mindful, be quieter, or, you know, whatever. And, um, but, and so to read, you know, often means just to read about the experience rather than have the experience. Um, and I'm certainly like that. I was raised that way. I was once, uh, on a beach in Hawaii, reading James Mishner's book, Hawaii. (laughs) And my friend Joseph pointed out, you can put the book down. You're here, you know. Um, But that's why, you know, it's not like reading is bad, but, you know, because it's very hard to moderate, we suggest that you, you try to give it up. So it's a very special kind of environment which is fantastic because it's really like an immersion experience. And these days, uh, they ask people, it's, it's totally voluntary, but um, if people are willing to, to surrender their phone for the duration of the retreat. so We'll do that next year at Karma Chilling. That's good. Mm. <laughs> we, I think we have to stop. We can, we'll be here because um, there are some books that... Uh, Certainly, if you want to buy Ethan's book and take it with you wherever you go, uh, we're both happy to sign books. And you can just come up and we'll just. So thank you. Thank you. It was so much fun.